Joseph is a dreamer. He's remembered most for his cloak of many colors, a gift from his father, Jacob, who loved him dearly. But above all, he's a dreamer. Joseph dreams of a better life for himself, a life where he does not reside at the bottom of the pecking order, the youngest of 12 brothers who seem to have no love or respect for him whatsoever. And those brothers are determined to ensure that Joseph's dreams of a better life never come true. Naturally, this conflict between brothers causes their father, Jacob, no end of grief. And maybe, when we deny other people their dreams, God feels the same way. The reading is from Genesis. And I'm warning you, it's brutal. (laughs) They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornamented robe that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brother and and said, the boy is gone, and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They had the ornamented robe taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Joseph tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words 
of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping always the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. But they're mine, my older son Ethan declared, tugging on the cheap pair of plastic headphones. They literally have my name written on them. You don't even use them, his little brother Levi retorted. They were each gripping one half of the headset like it was a wishbone that was about to be broken. I use them at school all the time, Ethan replied. School's out for the summer, Levi protested. As the father of two young boys, I often feel like King Solomon, forced to arbitrate one dispute or another, just as that ancient monarch presided over the case of two women who both insisted that a particular baby was theirs. Solomon, in his wisdom, or perhaps frustration, told them that he'd cut the child in half so they could share it. And at that moment, I'm tempted to get an axe from the garage and do the very same thing to these headphones. Instead, trying to keep my cool, I retreat to my closet and I dig up two more pairs, nearly identical to the first. Those are stupid, Levi says. Yeah, those headphones are dumb, Ethan chimes in. On this, they agree. And they go back to fighting over the first pair. Frankly, this whole episode is dumb. Neither one of them has any intention of actually plugging these headphones in or even using them. Ethan just doesn't want Levi to have them, and Levi just wants to wear them as some kind of weird fashion accessory. In the end, I can only laugh. Three pairs of headphones for two kids, and there's not enough to go around. There was a brief moment in time when Levi was first born that his older brother Ethan tolerated his presence. I mean, he was just an infant. He couldn't do much harm. I have photographs of those days that I cherish. Ethan cuddled up with Levi on the couch, smiling warmly. But by the time Levi had learned to walk and talk, that fragile peace was shattered. You see, there's a four and a half year age difference between them, and their personalities could not be more different. Ethan is an artist and an intellectual, a creative and sensitive soul. Levi leans more into his raw physicality, loudly charging about the house as a costumed supervillain and tormenting the family dog and his older brother who treats him like a nuisance. People frequently ask me how my kids are doing. They're great, I always reply as long as they're not in the same room together. I've often compared my boys to Jacob and Esau, those brothers from scripture that couldn't seem to get along. Even their personalities are similar. Jacob is clever and creative, whereas Esau is physically strong and always hungry. You may recall that he traded his entire inheritance for a bowl of soup, and you'd be amazed how many meals a six-year-old can put away every day. Their seemingly endless sibling rivalry weighs heavily on their poor father, Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac, their poor father, Isaac, who loves them both, Jacob and Esau, with all of his heart. But as these young men grow older and raise children of their own, they come to learn exactly how that feels. Jacob, in particular, is haunted by an incident of borderline fratricide among his sons. Among the 12 boys, Joseph is the eccentric one. He has strange dreams 
claims that he can predict the future, and he wears a loud, rainbow-colored coat. He's not like the rest of them. He doesn't fit in. While they toil in the fields, he wanders around daydreaming. He also seems to struggle with social cues and polite conversation, repeatedly telling his brothers that he had a vision about how one day they would all bow down before him. Irritated and annoyed, they finally decide that they can't take it anymore and they're going to kill him and throw him into a pit. But as this merchant caravan to Egypt passes by, their greed trumps their bloodlust, and they decide to profit off of his misfortune instead, sparing Joseph's life but selling him to slave traders. He is our brother, after all, his older brother Judah tells the others sarcastically, our own flesh and blood. Friends, today is Juneteenth the longest-running holiday among black communities that was only recognized as a federal holiday last year. This occasion marks black slaves' proper emancipation from slavery in 1865. And reflecting on this, it occurs to me that we have treated our own brothers and sisters very badly. Like Joseph's brothers, we literally sold them into slavery. Not us, personally, not you or I, but we've inherited a legacy of systemic racism that we have been willfully blind to for far too long. To call it sibling rivalry obviously doesn't begin to do it justice. And if God is indeed our collective father, then I imagine God grieves the suffering that is still inflicted on our own brothers. Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was issued on January 1st, 1863. So why do we celebrate that anniversary on June 19th, 1865, almost two years later, almost two and a half years later? Well, Juneteenth specifically celebrates the arrival of federal troops in Texas to actually enforce emancipation and the protections for former slaves that were now guaranteed under law. Slavery continued to be practiced in Texas until 1865. In fact, it had become something of a haven for slave owners from around the South after Lincoln's proclamation. And that finally came to an end when one General Gordon Granger stood on Texas soil with his troops and declared, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. When I was a kid, I didn't understand any of this. I knew that slavery had ended over 100 years ago, and I figured that, you know, the Civil Rights Movement probably took care of any lingering problems. Racism was a thing of the past, I figured, something that had nothing to do with me. I hadn't enslaved anyone. My conscience was clear. In any case, it was all water under the bridge, right? Just something for the history books. Well, not if you take off your headphones and pay attention to what's going on. You see, what I hadn't realized at that time was that while slavery had been outlawed, oppression against people of color had continued in more insidious ways. You see, the period of Reconstruction, as we call it, the post-Civil War era, created a powerful backlash among Confederates in the South that had lost the war. They were especially sore about the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments, which gave former slaves American citizenship and the right to vote. 
respectively. And as much as proponents, uh, and much as proponents of the so-called great replacement theory argue today, a lot of white people came to believe that they'd be marginalized at the voting booth. And just as some politicians today are trying to limit access to the polls, those old Confederates were not about to let that stand. They began systematically dismantling the protections put in place during Reconstruction. Much like Joseph's brothers, they were determined to ensure that the dreams of these former slaves never came true. In 1877, Southern Democrats and Northern Republicans, who bear little resemblance to today's parties, by the way, struck a deal behind closed doors in exchange for supporting Rutherford B. Hayes' presidential campaign, federal troops would be removed from the southern states, effectively allowing them to do as they pleased. And while these states still had to abide by federal law, technically, they began to pass legislation that effectively disenfranchised and marginalized black people. Thus, the so-called Jim Crow laws were born. Now, as one article that I found states, even though, by law, these rules did not say anything about race, they were crafted to keep certain people from the polls. Tools of suppression included literacy tests, poll taxes, grandfather clauses, property requirements, and other measures to restrict access to the voting booth. The promise of the 15th Amendment wasn't fully realized until the Voting Rights Act, 1965. And even now, there are many leaders trying to undermine that promise again with legislation aimed at keeping certain people away from the polls. Southern whites of that era were also threatened by the potential for economic prosperity among the black community, which is directly tied to property and home ownership. Practice of redlining, as it's called, refusing to offer proper mortgages or financial services to people in particular neighborhoods. This was especially problematic. Unable to secure a decent loan, black folks and immigrants who wanted to buy a house had no choice but to sign predatory housing contracts. If a single payment were missed or late, their entire property could be seized, and it often was. In an interview with Nathan Connolly, professor of history at John Hopkins University, he asserts that there are, and I quote, two historical facts make renting and tenant life in the Jim Crow South in particular, especially fruitful avenues for exploring the depth and profitability of American racism. At no point in American history did most black people live outside of the South, and at no point in American history did most black people own their own home. Black tenants were a confined and intentionally disempowered population whose lack of options made them an easy target for scapegoating and predatory real estate practices." End quote. I could go on. Segregation, property taxes, education, policing, the whole game has been rigged. Slavery was abolished, but it only took other more subtle, more insidious forms, many of which still persists to this day in self-perpetuating feedback loops of disempowerment and violence. It is a shameful legacy, one that many folks don't want to talk about or acknowledge, but that doesn't make it any less real or any less true. 
When Joseph was sold into slavery, his father, Jacob, was beside himself. Can you imagine what that must be like? To be fair, he thought that Joseph was dead. His brothers had dipped his signature rainbow coat in goat's blood and told their father that he'd been torn apart by wild animals. But had he known the truth, I don't think Jacob would have grieved any less. Friends, when we mistreat our brothers and sisters, God grieves. Like any father who watches his children hurt each other. God mourns what is and grieves what might have been. For some reason or other, I got to talking with my son Ethan about the Israelites' exodus from slavery in Egypt and the ten plagues that God inflicted upon the Pharaoh and his people. I told him about the frogs falling from the sky and the locusts and the rivers turning to blood and the death of every firstborn child in Egypt. It sounds like God was being pretty mean, Ethan observed. Maybe, I replied, but I think Pharaoh was being pretty mean too. Maybe God just wanted his children to get along. Ethan paused and gave that some thought for a moment. Are you trying to teach me another life lesson about getting along with my brother? <laughs> he asked. Nothing gets by you, I smiled. Well, here's the thing, he explained. We're brothers. We're not supposed to get along. This is an argument that Ethan regularly makes. Brothers aren't supposed to get along. If they are, clearly something is amiss. And as a father, I have to tell you, it makes me really sad. Because I love them both with all of my heart, and I want them to love each other as much as I love them. And, you know, I think God feels the same way about all of us. I don't know if humankind will ever overcome our fundamental differences Ours is a long, long history of violence. And the lynching tree isn't so great a distance from the cross. But as people of faith, we know that the cross was not the final word. We know that love, real love, heals wounds in time. Love dismantles systems of oppression and seeks justice where there is none. Love changes the world. And so let us be brothers and sisters, all of us, children of the same loving Father, bound by blood, instead of spilling it. Amen.